right, guys, welcome back to our teaching in the book of Matthew. Now, the last time we were here, or actually, let's just kind of look at it in a holistic type way. In the Sermon on the Mount, in 5, 6, and 7, chapters 5, 6, and 7, we saw where Matthew was giving Jesus' authority to teach. And then we saw in Matthew chapter 8, his authority to do miracles or to do signs. That is, as Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount was indicating as the Messiah, he has the authority to, to not only declare what the law is, but its proper interpretation. And then in chapter eight, what it does is through signs and wonders, he authenticated his message. He authenticated as well as his persons. And we saw a few of those signs like the healing of leprosy, and we talked about the uniqueness of the healing of leprosy in the sense that it was considered one of the messianic miracles, or in other words, a miracle that only the Messiah can do. And we talked about that at length. So we're not going to go through all of that right now. And then we talked about the healing of the servant of the centurion and how that the centurion had great faith and Jesus made according to Matthew one of the first indication of the great salvation of the Gentiles. That is when he said, many shall come from the East and the West and shall sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the sons of the kingdom shall find themselves cast out. These are the natural inheritors. That is the Jewish people because they did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. We saw other things as the, the mother-in-law of Peter being healed. And then we saw an issue dealing with the principles, two principles of discipleships. When one of the scribes excited because he liked everything that was going on around Jesus said, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, consider what you will do because this will demand suffering. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And then another man seeking to go first and bury his father. And Jesus told, let the dead bury their own dead. And this was teaching the principle of priority that the Messiah, Jesus, should come before any and all people. And then we saw in another thing when Jesus was walking uh, he asleep in the sheep, <laughs> asleep in the ship. And there was a demonic sense of trying to destroy Jesus. And we talked about all of that at length. And the disciples became very fearful, woke up Jesus. Jesus made them understand that as long as they're with him, they don't have to be worried about anything happening to them. Exercise faith in the Messiah. This led to a question from them. What manner or type of man? And as we move through the text, Matthew answered it in the next section. Even though Jesus does not permit testimony from demons, Matthew allowed them to give us information because as he went to the coast, into the coast of the, the region of the Gadara and the two uh, demon possessed men came out. And the first thing that they said concerning Jesus, we know who you are, son of God. In other words, they answered the questions that the disciples themselves asked. What manner of man is he? He's more than a man. He is God, the God man, God in the flesh. Okay. Now with all of that, we continue on into chapter nine. So let's just simply start now. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. 
and they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. Okay. Now we see now that Jesus has arrived back to his own city and we know his own city would be Nazareth. Okay. And he operated out of the region of Capernaum, but nevertheless, and so they brought, they heard about Jesus doing all of these wonderful things. And so they brought a paralytic, a man lying on a bed, paralyzed to Jesus so that he could be healed. And Jesus saw their faith. He understood that the men who brought the paralytic were believing that Jesus could actually heal. But Jesus did something kind of unique. Their expectation was for Jesus to no doubt come and lay his hands upon the paralytic and heal him. But Jesus did not do that. Jesus simply said that the man's sin should be forgiven. Now, this seems to suggest the reasons for the man's paralysis was because of his sins. What sins? We don't know. But this seems to suggest that he was paralyzed because of his sins. But also, too, Jesus knew. Now, he could have just simply walked up to the man and healed him because Jesus was going to heal him. But he wants to say something in this particular healing. And so he says something that will be extremely provocative. So he looks at the paralytic and simply says to the man, his sins are forgiven him. Now, when we look in the other um, synoptic gospels, Luke, Mark, and I believe it's in Mark that when Jesus said that the man's sins are forgiven him, as we continue on even here, there were some of the scribes who were standing by and they began to say within themselves that Jesus was blaspheming. But as Mark continues to say unto us, why he gives explanation to the Jewish thought. And it is true. What? That no man, no one can forgive sins except God alone. Or in other words, only God can forgive sins sins. And so this is what Jesus is trying to say about himself. And even Matthew is drawing out in his gospel, even though he is leaving the part about only God can because, and it's a beautiful thing. Matthew didn't need to tell tell them that the Jewish thought was only God can forgive sins. Why? Because Matthew's gospel is unto the Jews. They already know the Jewish beliefs. They already know that only God can forgive sins. So this causes a problem with the scribes. But notice, too, it also says they were beginning to say within themselves. Now, this takes us back. Remember when I taught you, too, that when the scribes, when the the, the body of, of examiners, scribes and Pharisees, were to come from the Sanhedrin. They were sent from the Sanhedrin. The first thing, the first part of their, 
uh, uh, coming to observe Jesus or John. This was for anyone acting in a messianic way. And here clearly Jesus is declaring to be the Messiah. John the Baptist said he was not the Messiah, but nevertheless, they would send, send a delegation first to observe. And then after the period of observation is over with, then we'll begin a period of questioning. After the period of questions were over, then they would render some form of judgment whether or not they are accepting this person's claim or not. Okay. So what we see because they're speaking within themselves, we are still in the period of observation. And so therefore they don't question Jesus at this time, but they are thinking within themselves that Jesus is blaspheming. Okay. And now notice this, Jesus knew their thoughts. Here is an exercise of the divine power. He is exercising his power as being God. Even in the whole context of this teaching is about only God can do certain things. Only God can do certain things. Okay. So he exercises this divine prerogatives to know the thoughts of men. And he began to say, why do you begin to speak evil within yourselves? Because to simply call to say that Jesus is a blasphemer is an evil thing to do. To even say that God is a blasphemer is an evil thing to do. Okay. So he gives them, he says, okay, I tell you what, What's easier to say something that you can simply say in words and there is no proof to it whatsoever. That is sons, your sins be forgiven. But how do we know? How can we verify? What is the evidence that this man's sins be forgiven? And then Jesus says, or what, what is, what is harder to do to tell the man, take up his bed, go to his own house, take up his bed and walk to literally heal this man. That is comparing the easier simply to say something, your sins are forgiven over against the harder thing, take up your bed and walk. So Jesus was simply saying by a demonstration of this power, that is if I'm able to heal this man, then you know what I just said to this man is true. So then Jesus turns and focuses attention on the paralytic and tells him, son, take up your bed and go to your own house. Take up your bed and walk so that you will know that this authority has been given unto the son of man. Now notice he used the title son of man. They already understood, even from the book of Daniel, son of man is a reference, is a title to the Messiah. But now what you can't, you can't miss is the context of this miracle. The context is only God can forgive sins. So therefore, if Jesus is able to perform this miracle under the spoken word that he can forgive sins, then the son of man, Messiah must also be God. He is not only son of man, Messiah. He is also attributing something to himself, the divine nature, the person 
of God. So after he turns his attention to the man, he heals the man. Then the, the crowd is awestruck. Actually, when you see the word awestruck, it literally means they're struck with fear and they begin to glorify God saying God glorifying God in that he has given such authority to men. And that's when they miss it for it was not such authority to forgive sins that is given to men, but the Messiah himself is God. And therefore he bears the authority to forgive the sins of men. So in this, in this wonderful miracle sign that Jesus did, he not only declared his Messiahship, but he also declared his divine nature. Okay. So now let's keep, let's continue going. Verse nine, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick, but go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay. So now we have the calling of Matthew. All right. Uh, <laughs> and so it says Jesus left out from there. He goes on and he meets Matthew sitting at the seat of custom. That is Matthew was a custom tax collectors. He would, when you were bringing, say for instance, bringing products from one place into another place, there would be a tax or a duty placed on those particular taxes. And Matthew's job was to collect the taxes on those goods that you are bringing into that area. So Matthew was a tax collector. And when Jesus saw him, he says to Matthew, follow me. Now always remember, remember this, Matthew knew of Jesus. So this is not Jesus simply calling Matthew. Matthew never heard of Jesus whatsoever. He did, but Jesus is now calling. This is the Matthew's giving us here. And so as Jesus has now called Matthew to be his disciple, to follow him on a permanent basis, Matthew gives a celebration. And this, that's it, like a farewell to his former life and in a sense, introducing Jesus to those who were in the company of such a person as Matthew. Remember, he is a tax collector. So therefore, when Matthew gave his so-called farewell party, he invited other tax collectors. And then we have that word called sinners. This was basically a euphemism for the prostitutes because the tax collectors were basically the only men <laughs> for the most part who can afford their services. So all of these people, the tax collectors at Matthew's 
farewell party and Matthew introducing them to Jesus, one whom, whom he believes to be the Messiah. And so the Pharisees were continuing to follow Jesus, observing him as well. And so what begins to happen now when the Pharisees see all of these tax collectors and remember the Pharisee did not believe that the tax collectors were even worthy to be considered as Jews and they truly hated the tax collectors. But and so they called them altogether sinners, but in particular the women sinners. So they questioned Jesus's disciples asking, you know, if your master is the Messiah, why in the world is the Messiah then eating with tax collectors and sinners? And so it came to the attention of Jesus, what the Pharisees were saying about him. And so Jesus simply directed his words now towards the Pharisees and simply says, those who are healthy do not need a physician, but simply people who are sick. In other words, those who are spiritually healthy, those who are saved do not need a physician. That is Jesus, the Messiah, but those who are sick, those who are sick in their sins, such as these one tax collectors, and sinners. And then Jesus begins to upbraid, to rebuke these Pharisees. And then he simply says to this, learn what this means. And he quotes from Hosea chapter six, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. In other words, I desire compassion for the sick. I desire compassion for the needy. I desire God's heart looks for the redemption to save sinners. I want to save sinners and empty rituals, empty, vain, righteous acts. I do not like so. And I do not desire sacrifice. That simply is bringing forth all of these ritualistic gifts according to the law when you are not, your heart is not right. In other words, remember when Isaiah says, these people draw near to me with their lips, with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they practice all of these other things. So in vain, all of these rituals of righteous sacrifices. But Jesus is saying here, that's not where God's heart is. God's heart is simply trying to save the lost and as the Messiah of God, he comes to do the will of God. For I did not come, that's what he means. I, the Messiah, did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And that's the whole problem here. For the Pharisees counted themselves as being righteous. And therefore, Jesus did not come for them. And even later on, he's going to say, he has come to open the eyes of those who are blind. And then the Pharisees are going to take that in a negative way. Are we supposed to be blind? And Jesus simply says, no, that's the problem. Because if you were blind, then I can open your eyes. But because you say that you see your blindness remain, you remain in your sins until you understand that you need the help of the Messiah and only the Messiah can save and deliver. You are stuck in your sins. So this is the idea behind what he is even saying at this time. I didn't come call the righteous and it's kind of like a wink and a nod at them. I didn't come to call you, but such ones as these 
tax collectors and sinners who know that they are lost, who know that they need the Messiah. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They are blessed because they realize they have a need and only the Messiah can meet that need. Okay, let's keep going. 14. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and, and the worst tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the wine skins burst and the wine pours out and the wine skins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh skins and both are preserved. Okay, so now we have the occasion where the disciples of John come to Jesus asking, why don't Jesus disciples fast like the disciples of John and the Pharisees do? And that was a fasting on twice a week. Now, you have to understand the very nature of fasting. Fasting, as is taught in scripture, is the afflicting of the soul by neglecting to feed it, to give the flesh that which it desires. Food, water, things of that nature. So it is called the afflicting of the soul. You got it? So they were wondering why Jesus, Jesus' disciples, if he is the Messiah, why aren't they practicing the same thing that the disciples of John and the Pharisees do? And so Jesus simply responded to them in the scenario of the wedding feast. And this was a common uh, thought concerning the Jewish people that the presence of the Messiah is as being at a festive wedding feast. And so Jesus simply says, the attendance of the bridegroom. So the, the, the son of the feast, that, is, that means the sons of the feast, and those are his disciples. They, they do not mourn, because, and when he says mourning, remember, fasting deals with the issue of afflicting of the soul. Therefore, that is mourning. They don't mourn as long as the bridegroom is present. Jesus here is the bridegroom and the disciples are the sons of the bridegroom. They are the ones invited to the bridegroom, to these festive activities. And because it is a festive activity, it is no time for mourning. And therefore, since it's no time for mourning, but a time in a sense of joy, then the disciples should not fast because fasting is the affliction, the mourning. But then Jesus begins to say, because he anticipates his upcoming uh, crucifixion and his departure return back into heaven. He says, but there will come a time when the bridegroom will be removed from them. And in those days, they will mourn. Or in other words, in those days, it would be okay for them to fast. But as long as he is present, it is a time of rejoicing. Then he begins to speak in a parabolic sense, and he talks about 
patching things. No one puts a patch of unshrunk, unshrunk cloth in an old garment. In other words, the Pharisees were looking. Remember I told you about the, the, the teachings of the elders and the additional rules to what uh, the Pharisees would add in accordance to the law, which later on became the Mishnah. I told you guys about this in previous videos. But, and so they were expecting, that is the Pharisees, that the Messiah would be like they were. He would continue to patch the holes. He would continue that which is lacking. He would continue to patch it up and to build up, patch the holes into the fence. And Jesus deals with this as adding uh, new cloth onto old cloth. And this is Jesus. Jesus is bringing about a new thing. He is not trying to patch up the holes of the Pharisees, the laws of the teachings and the doctrines of the elders of the Pharisees, not the Mosaic law, but all these other additional rules. He is not coming to do that which would satisfy the Pharisees. He is bringing about something new and therefore he calls this a new cloth. And in that bringing about the new, you cannot get a new cloth and patch it into an old cloth because what does it do? It ruins the fabric because it causes it to stretch and it is ruined altogether. You must use that which is altogether new within itself. Then he continues to teach concerning wine. He says, people don't put notice new wine into old wine skins because those old wine skins as the, the old wine skins have previously had wine put in them. As the wine fermented, it caused those wine skins to stretch. You got it? So he says, you don't take new wine and put it into old wine skin. Why? As that new wine, it also begins to fermentate. It'll make the old wine skins stretch even further, but stretch so much until it bursts. And then you lose the wonderful wine. But what do you do? If you have new wine, you must put them in new wine skins. And in this way, the wine will be preserved. What is he saying again? It's just another parabolic saying. He introduces something new and therefore they need to prepare their minds and their hearts to receive that which is new from the Messiah. Okay. So now let's go to the next section, verse 18. And that which is new is, is the teachings of the Messiah, which will later on be referenced as the law of Messiah, the law of Christ, in expanded in the expanded sense, the teachings applied to the church from the Messiah, from Christ and the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament teachings of Jesus, the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament. This is the new wine. OK, now, verse 18, while he was saying these things to them. A synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her and she will live. Jesus got up and began to follow him. And so did his disciples. 
and a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if only I touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus turning and seeing her said, daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. At once the woman was made well. Now let's stop there because this is somewhat of a lengthy section and Matthew is giving us these events in an abbreviated form. When we look at Mark and Luke, I believe both of them talk about this issue. They expand on this issue. Okay. So it lets us know where Matthew leaves out the, the ruler of the synagogue's name. Uh, the other synoptic gospel lets us know his name was Jairus. All right. And that his daughter, when Jairus was coming to Jesus, she was actually about to die. She had not died yet but her sickness was leading her to the point of death. And when the, um, when the ruler gets to Jesus, he implores him to come heal his daughter, but she wasn't dead yet. So, but there was a very thick crowd around Jesus, even to the point that Jairus found difficulty in getting to Jesus. But nevertheless, it was very hard to move throughout this thick crowd. And then in the middle of all of this, Jesus is approached by a woman who is uh, had a hemorrhage of blood uh, um, uh, for 12 years. And also interesting too, the daughter of Jairus was 12 years old. This woman had a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years old. Okay. And this hemorrhaging of blood made this woman unclean, ceremonially unclean. So the last thing that this woman wanted to do was to draw unnecessary attention to herself and to touch the Messiah in an uh, uh, forbidden way because herself being unclean, she did not want to make physical contact with Jesus so as to make him unclean. So as the other writers would tell her, she was on the ground. She believed that if she touched the hem of his garment, the very cloak that Jesus was wearing near his feet, she would be made whole. She would be healed of this. So she did this and she did this thinking no one knew and no one thought of it. No one, no one knew what she actually was doing, but Jesus knew what she had done. And he began to question who touched him because he felt power had left his body. And so the woman understanding that she could not be hid. She finally came forward and told Jesus her situation and what she had done. And Jesus to, to her satisfaction, to her happiness, he didn't condemn the woman, but he said, be of good cheer. And he called her daughter, which was a word of affection. Be of good cheer, daughter, your faith, has made you whole. So in all of this, now what you have to keep in mind, Jairus is trying to get Jesus to come to his house soon as possible because his daughter is about to die. So then, now we got this interruption with this woman who has been healed by an issue of blood. And then all of a sudden now, some people come from Jairus' household and tells him, don't worry about troubling the master anymore. Don't trouble Jesus any longer. Why? Because his daughter has just died. 
and it is at this time. And so Matthew, Matthew just kind of gives us an abbreviated form, but all of this is good to know. And it is at this time that Jesus, you can see him almost lifting up the head of Jairus as he begins to lose hope because now his daughter has died. And Jesus tells him, keep believing, keep believing as Jesus and Jairus continue through this throng of people, the crowd of people working their way to Jairus's house and Jairus daughter now being dead. Okay. So now it is with that, that we continue on in verse number 22. But Jesus turning and seeing her said to her daughter, I'm sorry. <laughs> I've already dealt with that, but just in case that the healing of the woman daughter, take care of your faith has made you hold. Okay. Now verse 23, let's get into that. That's the continuation through the crowd with Jairus and Jairus daughter already being dead. And this will explain the scenario that's outside of his house. When we get there now, let's go. Verse 22, 23, when Jesus came into the official's house, and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder. He said, leave for the girl has not died, but is asleep. And they began laughing at him. But when the crowd had been sent out, he entered and took her by the hand and the girl got up. This news spread throughout all that land. Okay. So now you see what's going on. So watch this. So by the time that they arrive at the house, the report has already been given to Jesus and Jairus. She's dead. All right. That's why you see all of this to do about the house. They are mourning the girl. And this is all of this. What the flute players and the noisy disorder and the crowd around Jairus' house. This is the mourners who have come to mourn the death of Jairus's daughter. And so when Jesus comes into the house, he gets rid of all this noisy crowd. He says, the girl is not dead. She is simply asleep. Now it is a euphemism for death, but it is also Jesus speaking in a futuristic sense of what he will do. He will waken her out of her sleep. He will bring her back from the dead. But when Jesus says that she's asleep, notice they go from, they do a 180 degree turn. They turn from mourning in all of the loud mourning into laughter. And so Jesus just simply says, all of y'all get out. And then we'll find out that he only allows a certain number of people. I believe it was Jairus, Peter, James, and John to come into the house. Jairus, I think also his wife as well. But nevertheless, he allows a few people to witness what he is about to do. And so he takes the girl by the hand and he simply resurrects her from the dead. And the other synoptic gospel lets us know that he then tells the father, give the girl food so that the girl can be rested because whatever her sickness is, it is taking a lot out of her. So Jesus simply says, do the natural thing, food and water and rest so she can recoup from what she's been through. Okay. So Jesus has now resurrected this girl from the dead. And now this report of what Jesus has done is spread everywhere. 
And this becomes an issue for Jesus because Jesus does not. And it seems to be the case when Jesus would say, tell no one about these things. Not that he doesn't want people to know that he is the Messiah, but the wrong in understanding and perception of him to simply see Jesus as a miracle worker. If you do not rightly understand the signs, then Jesus would rather not you even know about the signs that is the signs, the miracles that he does testify that he is the Messiah and the son of God. But if you're just going to only see the signs and run and flock to Jesus for the signs, even as he says in the John chapter six, don't seek me for the the bread alone, but seek me for that, which is even greater that I'm the Messiah who can give you spiritual life. So if you don't get that, what good is the sign to these people? So sometimes Jesus would simply say, tell no one in certain instances. Okay. But anyway, now let's continue to verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came up to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, it shall be done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about this, but they didn't obey him. They went out and spread the news about him throughout all the land. Okay. So now we go again, continuing the works of Jesus to blind men following Jesus. How were the blind men able to follow Jesus? They couldn't see the crowd. There was always this huge crowd, noisy crowd following Jesus. And so they were able to do so. And so follow Jesus and they got his attention, Jesus attention by shouting out to him, have mercy, son of David, have mercy, son of David. And by that, you know, have mercy, meaning heal us. And by calling him son of David, this is the messianic title. So they were calling him son, rightful king of Israel. Messiah to the Jewish people. So they addressed him by his messianic title and Jesus getting them out of the crowd, out of the crowd, brought them into a house and he simply asked them, do you believe you're asking me to heal you? Do you think that I can? And they simply said, yes, Lord, we really believe. And Jesus healed them on the basis of their faith. If you believe that I am the Messiah, able to heal you, then receive such a miracle. And their eyes were open at that point. And it was then, as I just told you about the warnings that Jesus would give, he says, don't go and tell everybody. And, but nevertheless, they went out <laughs> and began to publish it everywhere. Again, the reasons why, as I just told you, you have to associate the signs that Jesus did with the person that he was claiming to be. To not do so, to not associate the sign, but simply to see him as some miracle worker is without merit. Okay. All right. Now let's go to our final sections. 32. As they were going out, a mute demon possessed man was brought to him. 
I'll say that again. A mute demon possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke and the crowds were amazed and were saying nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. Jesus might as well finish it. Jesus was, I tell you what, let me stop right there. Let's deal with this alone. So now we go to a particular situation and it demands a closer investigation. And so the people brought a, a man who was both mute and he was possessed with demons. Okay. And the idea is he was unable to speak because of his demon possession. So he was a demon possessed man, unable to speak. And the crowd brought this man to Jesus basically to heal him, even to so to see if Jesus could heal him. And when they brought the man to Jesus, Jesus simply just cast the demon out. And when he cast the demon out, the man was no, he was free of his demons. And now his tongue was loosed. He was able then to speak. Notice the reaction of the crowds. The crowds were amazed. Now remember, Jesus was doing all kinds of miracles anyway, but this miracle really got the attentions of the crowd. And notice what they said. Let me say it my way. We ain't never seen nothing like this before. <laughs> nothing like this has been done in all of, they were really seriously amazed. So now this brings us to, helps us to understand some things. We need to understand it. Why would, this was one of the unique miracles and it uh, make us understand why the crowds responded the way that they did and also why the Pharisees began to respond the way that they do. There were two types of miracle. There were the general miracles. That is a man, that a miracle that any man could do, any man who had faith in God, any man who had faith in God could do these miracles. Then there was another class of miracles and these were called or understood to be messianic miracles. That is miracles that only can be done by the Messiah. So they had to wait for the Messiah to get here. And when he gets here, only the Messiah would be able to do certain miracles. In this class of miracles, there were basically three things, three types of miracles that the Jews believe that only the Messiah could do. We've already seen one of them. That is the healing of leprosy. They believe, and I talked about that in last week's lesson, I think in chapter eight, only the Messiah could heal of leprosy. Therefore, Jesus demonstrated his power over leprosy, claiming to be Messiah. The people say truly, and remember this is the whole point about the priest, but we can't go get back into all of that. Only the Messiah can heal leprosy. This is the second case here. Heal a man who was demon possessed, but unable to speak. So now let me give you some background in that. Healing men who were demon possessed was nothing new in Jesus's day. And Jesus even said concerning them that if I cast uh, demons out by the finger of God, then who, who do you, who do your sons and daughters cast them out? So they were healing, casting out demons already, but they had a procedure whereby they exercised in order to cast out the demons. 
the first thing that they would do, they would get the man who was demon possessed. And then they would begin to question the demon within the man. And they would ask the demon in the man, declare to us your name. So the demon had to tell them what his name was. In the giving of the name of the demon, the, the exorcist, the one casting out the demon, you by authority of the demon's name would then cast the demon out. So they had a procedure. The demon man had to be able to speak. So the demon had to declare his own name and then the exorcist, the one casting out the demon, would use the demon's name to cast him out. But if the demons had prevented the man from speaking, you could not get the name of the demon. And if you can't get the name of the demon, it, you cannot cast the demon out. So therefore they believe only the Messiah would have the power and authority to cast a demon out without knowing the demon's name, to cast a demon out without a word, not the way the Pharisees did, but without a word. So when Jesus cast this demon out without at going through all of those motions and getting the name of the demon, he fulfilled what the people believe. Only the Messiah could cast out a dumb, a man who was unable to speak, who was demon possessed. And that's why they would say they were amazed and they said, this has never ever been done. And they, they are beginning to muse. They are beginning to think. Truly, Jesus is showing proof he is the Messiah, you see? So this is why they were so amazed because of that messianic miracle. So I don't know if I told you all of them, the casting out of a, 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 a leprosy to uh, cast out of demon, heal a man of leprosy, casting out of demons of a man who could not speak. And the third messianic miracle would be to heal the gift sight, to heal a man who was born blind. Now that's not in the context here, but those were the three messianic miracles that they believe, the Jews believe, only the Messiah could do these three miracles, okay? So if Jesus did them, it was proof, even in their belief system, he must be the Messiah. So that takes us even to what the Pharisees were saying, because notice the Pharisees now began to react to what the people, the Pharisees know that what they believe too, they believe too that only the Messiah could uh, cast out a demon of a mute man. They believe it. And they are also aware of the people beginning to think this way about Jesus. And they have already in their hearts the Pharisees have already in their hearts rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And since they rejected Jesus as the Messiah, they come against Jesus by saying what? He cast out demons by the ruler of demons. And later on, we're going to see they're going to call it Beelzebub. But in other words, the Pharisees are saying Jesus is able to cast out demons through the power of demons. Or in other words, because Jesus himself is demon possessed. So now is here is when, let me slow it down. They first, the Pharisees first began saying these things. So this is the idea. So this is what Matthew is trying to get us to see. The Pharisees are now 
because they have rejected Jesus, that they've already made the determination. He is not the Messiah. They have to answer. If he's not the Messiah, then why is he doing messianic things? And they have to come up with an answer. And the answer is that's because he got the power of demons. He's demon possessed. So now it's the first of all of this. Okay. And the reason why this is so important is we'll find out later on as we get to chapter 12. Once the Pharisees have solidified this thing that Jesus is demon possessed. Okay. And that he is doing these things because of demon possession. Now, let me backtrack a little bit. Let me backtrack a little bit. Backtrack. The teachings of Jesus that he is doing, claiming that he is the Messiah, the, the signs that Jesus, the miracles that Jesus are performing, claiming proof that he is the Messiah, both in word and in deed. By doing these things, Jesus is presenting himself to the Jewish people as the Messiah. He is giving them an opportunity to accept him as the Messiah, the King of Israel. That's what Jesus is doing in his teachings and in his miracle signs. He is giving all of Israel opportunity to accept him. You got it. But once we get into this foolishness led by the Pharisees, calling Jesus demon possessed. And here's when we begin to see it first beginning to happen. Once we get into that, they will continue on where both the, the, the Pharisees will persuade the people because always whatever the Pharisees will believe, eventually the people will begin to believe. So as their teachers, so goes the people. And then the people will begin to believe that Jesus is casting out demons by being demon possessed. Matthew chapter 12, it will get to a point of no return. And the offer where Jesus once offered himself as Messiah, King of the Jews, he will rescind the offer. He will no longer allow them to re relate to him as King. In other words, from this point on, I am not coming to you as King. And from this point on, I will not even be your King. I will not even be your Messiah. You have rejected me. You have reached a point of no return. So therefore Jesus, because of this mess that's starting to happen in chapter 12, Jesus will announce this, that from this point on, the kingdom has been rescinded. You can no longer have the kingdom of God. In other words, that long awaited kingdom that the Jews have expected and believing that the Messiah would bring in, Jesus says, this option is no longer available to you again. Why? Because you have said I'm demon possessed. So all I'm trying to say here is we have to understand how important this began. It begins a slight transition when they begin to call Jesus demon possessed. Jesus is, Jesus is going to withdraw the offer of himself 
as being both king and Messiah to them. All right. 35. Now let's try to bring it to a close. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Okay, so now as we end it with that negativity that has come through, come from the Pharisees as they're trying to project this into the hearts of the people. Jesus still continues his ministry, offering the kingdom. He's still going about offering, teaching and preaching. Notice not only doing signs, but teaching declaring himself to be the Messiah and then proving he is the Messiah through signs and wonders and doing what healing all kinds of sickness and diseases. So this is the proof of these things. And as he looked at the people in their dispirited case, in their downtrodden sense, the heart of Jesus was moved. And this was because the Pharisees, the people's spiritual leaders, had failed their job. And so Jesus' heart is broken because of these Pharisees trying to call him demon-possessed, but they're not doing their job and all of this foolish teaching that they're doing. Jesus looked at the people and, and saw the Pharisees. These people are like sheep who don't have a shepherd because the Pharisees were supposed to be the shepherds of the people. They were supposed to be the rightful teachers of the people, but because they fail, Jesus saying, my God, this is so sad. The state, the spiritual state that God's people and Jesus can even say, my people are in. So his heart is broken as he looked at those people realizing they need a good shepherd. They need spiritual tending. And so he says, as he goes throughout all of the land, Great is this harvest. The people need this spiritual teaching. And he looks at his disciples and say, the harvest truly, my disciples, is great. But guess what? There's a problem. Those who need to work in the harvest, the laborers, are so few. All right, guys, thanks for joining me in Matthew chapter 9. Now, as we continue on in chapter 10, we're going to deal with just what Jesus has just said, that the harvest is so plentiful, the laborers are so few, but pray that God will send harvesters, laborers into his harvest. And that's what we will continue in Matthew chapter 10, as Jesus prepares his disciples to go out into the harvest to go out into all of the cities of Judea as he instructs them as the disciples how to go out into the harvest to conduct themselves, what to expect, and also he empowers them. He gives them authority to cast out devils, to heal and to heal all manner of sickness and disease, to work the harvest. Because what does it mean to work the harvest? To work the harvest is to say, Jesus is the Messiah and the Messiah is now here.
here. All you people believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. They are to work the harvest. This is what it means to work in the harvest, to declare the person and the work of Jesus as Messiah, King of the Jews. So Jesus in chapter 10 will prepare them for this mission and working the harvest. All right, guys, thanks for joining me with that and see you next time. Producing these videos take a lot of time and they take resources too, guys. All the, the computers, the cameras, the blah, 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 blah. They take resources. So if God touches your mind and your heart, bless this ministry. If it helps you, if these teachings help you, bless the ministry, send a donation, or even become a monthly partner with me so that I can continue to do these things. I don't do it. I don't do it to make money, God forbid, but I do it that the ministry may be supported and that I might continuously with joy, because it does give my heart joy, to continuously bring these lessons to you for your benefit, for your spiritual enrichment, okay? So help me out.